This morning we're looking at services that reflect redemption. Services that reflect redemption. You know, the interesting thing about what we go through right now, but as I've been studying, I'm realizing, you know, we're not going through anything new. We're not really wrestling with issues that people before didn't have to wrestle with, that the church didn't struggle with. You know, last week we looked at the importance of having three and maintaining two. Having three and maintaining two. And that's a big picture issue as we look at a church. Now, many times people would say, you know, I've never been in a church plant. I've never been in a church startup before. I've never been in a situation like this where so many things are being discussed and we actually have the opportunity to impact what happens in this church. Usually you go to a church and it's already been established. And you're not quite certain how it got where it is, but you're looking for something that maybe would be similar to what you're hoping you're familiar with. But we get the opportunity to actually try to pattern our church based on what the scripture says. Now, probably in the past, that's what each of those churches have tried to do. And over the years, we've forgotten why we do what we do. Last week's service was so important of everyone must have three, but you must maintain two if the church is going to do well. You see, the, the point is, is that every one of us needs to be right with God. The message of the Bride of Christ, the message of each local church, is that you can be right with God. And therefore, when we look back at verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, Now the end is love out of a pure heart. How to have a right relationship with God? That, first of all, begins with having a pure heart with God. That is not just trying to keep your life clean. Obviously, that's important. We could go to scriptures that would talk about that. But as he's talking about the big picture, he's saying, first of all, everyone needs to be right with God. Everyone needs to have a pure heart. How does that take place? Only through Jesus Christ. You see, the message in every church ought to be there is only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ alone. It's not good works it's not things that we do. It is only Jesus Christ. Sin has to be addressed in every church. But you notice, someone might say, or you may say, what have I done that's so bad that would deserve me being separated from God? And Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, reminded him, he said, now remember, the law is on purpose. The law is to tell us what sin is. The law can't bring salvation. The law tells us why we need salvation. And remember last week, we looked at Paul's personal testimony. And Paul said, look at my life. I was a blasphemer. I hurt other people. And he lists all these different things. And he says, why would I be someone that God would use to save and to be an apostle to go out and preach the gospel? He says, what an amazing thought. And the reason being, he says, because I'm the worst of all the sinners. You see, churches are not made up of good people. 
I was reminded this week as I was listening to a message, as I was listening to a preacher preach to me, and I was reminded of this. You know, Jesus rejoiced when the lost sheep came back. Every time a lost sheep, every time a person receives Christ, there is singing, there's joy up in heaven. Why, why, why didn't he rejoice over the 99 that were still in the fold? Because they hadn't come to the realization yet that they also were lost sheep. God rejoices over every one of those. So we talked about you must have three. It begins with salvation, but remember, salvation's a free gift, right? Therefore, you don't maintain the gift. It was a gift. But you do have to maintain the other two, a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Faith, obviously, is not a repetition of being pure before God. In fact, he tells us in verse uh, 18 and 19, end of chapter 1, he says, the faith I'm talking about is understanding the body of faith that we've been given, God's word. He says you've got to maintain a good conscience, which means every church service is going to focus on, one, everybody needs to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You need that gift. Second of all, when we come, we need to have a clear conscience. But when we get here, if we hear that there is something in our lives that doesn't line up with Scripture, we need to get a clear conscience, a good conscience. It's so important. Every time we meet together, our hearts always ought to be, Lord, if there's something that needs to change in my life, let's change it. Because blessed are the undefiled in the way. But then the third thing he says is a faith unfeigned. You have to maintain your body of beliefs. Because you see, it's our body of beliefs that drives our conscience. We can come to church and we can say, best of my knowledge, I'm right before God. And then we get to church and we hear God's word and we recognize, oh, I didn't know that. My body of faith did not match the body of faith and I need to make sure that they work together. So after he talked about that, and that's a really big concept in chapter one, he then moves into chapter two and he talks about services that reflect redeemed people. You see, our church service ought to reflect what redeemed people look like. We have what's called worship wars. In other words, how do you want to worship? Well, I like this kind of church. I like this kind of church. I like this kind of church. I find it fascinating. Paul didn't give that kind of scenario. Paul says, first of all, let me tell you what a worship service looks like. And he began with prayer. You see, as Paul talked about prayer, he says, I want you to recognize something. He says, your service ought to reflect dependence on God. If we come in, and this looks like it's all about people, it's all about me, it's all about you, we look just like an unredeemed person trying to make their way in the world. What does prayer look like? Prayer demonstrates a dependence upon God. I so appreciated Kevin leading us in prayer. And I appreciate those of you who are leading us in prayer because he says, it's my desire, and we're going to see this in verse 8. He says, it's important that men learn to lead in prayer. It's important that men lead. So notice he says, dependence, not independence, from God in verses 1 through 7. We studied that a little while ago on prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is communicating with God. When we come together, if we get in a hurry and we say, I don't have time for a long prayer. 
We need to get this thing going here. I got things to do today. What have we really said? I don't really need God. My services are only so that I can make myself feel good. You see, worship, he begins by, by mentioning three kinds. He says, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. Supplication is recognizing I need God. Each of us, as we were praying, as Kevin was leading us in prayer this morning, we are all acknowledging I need God today. I have needs in my own life. I am insufficient on my own. And that is so counter to what unsaved, to what unredeemed man looks like. Unredeemed man says, I can do this. I can pick myself up. If you just have the right attitude, if you just have the right focus, without God, I will be nothing. The second thing he talks about supplication, then he talks about prayer. And we saw that prayer deals with worship. God's worth-ship. God is worthy of us today. And we ought to be talking to him, and we ought to be expressing as a group, God, you are worthy. He talks about supplications, prayers, intercessions. These are things where we begin praying about areas where we see life doesn't look like God. Life doesn't look like what it's supposed to. And we then are beginning to say, Lord, we know this is messed up and we want it to look like what you would have it to look like. And then the fourth thing is the giving of thanks, remembering what God did in men's behalf. You see, that's part of our worship. And it, what it does for us is it brings us to a reminder of who God is. My wife and I, as we were driving in this morning, were fascinated by the fact I'm seeing more and more commercial work being done on Sundays. Why is that? Because more and more people don't worship. If you don't worship, what's the point of having a day of worship? So we open our stores more. It used to be because we didn't, it's not that we didn't care about people. If someone had a need, of course you would open your store and get them what they would need. Why? Because you care about them. Their ox is in a ditch. But now it's, well, I don't know. It's not a day that I'm working. I don't have anything else going on. I guess we'll go shopping or we'll go do something. I'm not disparaging that. I'm not giving you a checklist. What I'm telling you is, is that what we're seeing around us is we have a culture now that doesn't even understand worship. It used to be worship was such a, an important part of the fabric. So many people were worshiping. Of course, businesses weren't open because we were worshiping. The second thing is remembering God's goals here on earth. Look at the there, verse uh, 4 through 7, and we read, remember God's goals here on earth. You ever wonder why, why doesn't God just fix everything? Why doesn't God just change everything? I'm so tired of seeing the wickedness in this world. Don't you think God is too? So why isn't he fixing everything? Because God's one overarching goal is that all men would come to repentance. And he's long-suffering. And there's only one way to get there, according to what we read here. There is only one God. There's no other gods. There's only one God. There is one mediator, Jesus Christ. 
and he gave himself for a ransom. You see, that goes back to that first principle in chapter one that Paul was teaching. He says, always remember, make sure that people understand they can be right with God. It's a gift, it's through Jesus Christ. And what do we read? He gave himself a ransom for all. Jesus Christ, his death was sufficient for everyone. Now, I'll be honest with you. The more I watch things on TV that I really can't influence, that I really can't change, it makes me angry. And my sinful flesh says, you know, the best way to fix this is take that man out. But why don't I do that? Why don't I even talk that way? Because, you see, I have a different perspective. God says that person is so valuable, even while he is yet sinning. And the more onerous that person is to me, the more I recognize he needs salvation. You see, our burden should not be building fires and doing protests and breaking windows. Our whole point as believers is this is reminding us why Jesus Christ came and died. Why are we seeing a nation that is so inflamed right now? Why do we see, you know, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died just this week, and immediately you hear the president say, let's replace that position in the court. And what was the response of other people? If you can't stop it, burn the whole place down. Why would someone talk that way? Because they don't understand redemption. They don't understand the worth of an individual. They, there's so many things that when we look, we realize their worldview is only selfishly driven. We come to verses 8 through 15. And we're going to look just briefly again at what we talked about three weeks ago. And then we're going to finish this chapter, a chapter that I think brings confusion and I think also helps us to understand why in some of these worship wars, why do we take the position we do? Why don't we have lady pastors? Why don't we have lady leadership? Why is that? Is that just the preference? Is that what we grew up with? Is that just what we want? Are we, are we really showing a sinful nature when we do that. And that's, we have to look at the scriptures and we have to be able to tell people, here's why we believe what we believe. We shouldn't shy away from it. So let's look, first of all, in our worship services, our worship services, a redeemed, a service that reflects redemption, first of all, should always demonstrate dependence, not independence from God, dependence on God. The second thing ought to be a service that reflects redemption should reflect changed lives, changed living. Look at verse 8 with me, please. And there we read, I will that men there, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, gold or pearls or costly array, but which become with women professing godliness with good works. 
So let's pause there for just a moment. First of all, he says, men show a changed life by actions and attitudes. Men, we show that we are redeemed by our attitudes and by our actions. And he begins, first of all, by actions. First of all, prayer. As men, specifically men, we don't like to admit that we're wrong. We don't like to admit that we ever don't know what we're doing. All the way down to, you know, I mean, GPS has so taken this out of our hands anymore. It's so nice. Now, it used to be, are we lost? I don't think so. Could we just stop and ask? No, I know where we are. We've been here before. No, we haven't. Why can't we just stop and ask for directions? Because we're right. Because we don't like to admit that we're wrong. Because we are independent and we can do it. And don't tell me I don't know where I am. I just am spatially displaced right now. So what does he say? He says, men, I wish that men would always pray. What does prayer demonstrate? Dependence. When Kevin gets up and he leads us in prayer and he asks for, for guidance for our leaders, first of all, he's saying, I can't make our leaders change. And second of all, they don't know what they're doing either. But God, you can, you can direct them. When we are praying for various things, we as men are leading everyone else to recognize we can't do this on our own. You see, a changed life reflects dependence, but notice in that changed life, he talks about two things. He says, first of all, what they wear. I found this interesting. What do men who have changed lives wear? They wear holy hands. These are actions. We stop doing these actions that would be associated with our former lifestyle. The things we used to do, that's not what we do anymore. It's not a checklist. It's because you are redeemed. You live a different life now. And then when we come to worship, he's saying, make sure that you've come with your life cleansed. So that you are praying, and when you pray, you are not wearing the old garb of what you used to look like before salvation. Actions not only associated with your sinful lifestyle, but actions that would demonstrate an independent lifestyle. You know, our lives ought to be demonstrating to our families and to our church, we're dependent on the Lord. You see, what they wore into church impacted the worship, impacted what people thought about salvation, impacted what people thought about the redeemed life. And I would challenge you with this thought, we model what we believe. We can't hide that. What would be the attitudes? Well. The right actions, we've kind of talked about, but the right attitudes. The right attitudes deal with, and specifically for the Ephesians, you've got a really wicked leader that is over all the world at this point. The Roman leader was wicked. He was mean. 
He was going to kill Paul. Paul's days, by the time we get to 2 Timothy, Paul's days were very few. Now, what should be our response to a man like that? How should we pray? God, take him out. Hmm. That sounds like the old me rather than the new me. You see, the right attitude toward our circumstances is, my God is still in control. And that's hard for us as men because we like to just grab hold of stuff and make it happen. If a bolt won't move, what do you do? You get a longer pipe, right? And if that doesn't work, you get a longer pipe and you get to where, and when you break the wrench, what do you do? You go back and you get a bigger wrench because I can do this. It's a guy thing. I know you girls look at us and go, there's not a whole lot going on in your head, is there? We go, you don't get it, do you? I mean, this is, this is big stuff here. Now, he says, guys, make sure your attitudes and your actions, what you are wearing when you come to worship, reflects a redeemed person, a gentleness that says, my God's in control. Then he moves to the ladies, and he says, Ladies, your life should show a changed life, a redeemed life. And he talks about the actions. And interestingly enough, for the men, he didn't specifically mention outfits. But for the ladies, he did. Why? Because men and women are different. Guys, we could pretty much wear the same thing every day. Ladies don't like to do that. You see, and what did he say? Ladies, beware, what you wear impacts worship. So what does he say? Wear modest apparel. You see, what is he saying? Wear appropriate, these are kinds of clothing that you used to wear before you were saved that wouldn't be appropriate for a changed life. <clears throat> say, aren't you going to give me a list of clothing? Absolutely not. What I am going to tell you is that God says that the things that used to look like my old sinful lifestyle shouldn't be in my life anymore. Are there kinds of clothing? Not specifically what Paul was drilling down on. Paul's talking about specific kinds of clothing that, that, that was associated with immorality. and specific kinds of clothing that was associated with pagan worship. So he's saying, men, women, make sure that your actions when you come to church reflect a regeneration, someone who's new, someone who's different. And then notice the attitudes that he talks about for the ladies. He talks about shamefacedness and sobriety. Those are not terms that we typically use today, words that would be difficult for you, maybe for understanding. You know what he's talking about? He's saying, women, make sure you think through your actions, that there's thought, it's intentional. You're sober, you're thinking about it. Don't do what you do because everyone else does it. Consider 
what the changed life looks like and then do that, wear that. So he talks about appropriate hairstyles. It's interesting. Hairstyles can convey a life philosophy. He talks about modest clothes, accessories, and modest hairstyles. Then he says, instead of making that your focus, make how you live your focus. Notice how he brings the same thing right back that he talked to the men about. Men, make sure that the way you live looks regenerate. Ladies, make sure the way you live looks regenerate. And the, the easiest way is the way a man handles life pressures, and the easiest way is how a lady is going to get what she wants. You see, your new goal in life is to reflect whatever God's Word says. Now we come to verses 11 through 15. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. What does that mean? That's probably a passage that people have looked at and they go, I have no idea what this means, so I can't really glean anything out of it. Verses 11 through 15, men and women showing submission to God in his design. Now notice verse 11, men and women were worshiping together. They were part of the worship. And notice in verses 11 and 12, men and women had different roles. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, what does he say? Here's, the, here's what this, he says, here's the way it should look. Women are to learn, not teach in corporate services. Now remember the whole context is in corporate service, in what they were doing when they met together. The word silence there does not mean when you walk in the door, you don't speak. It has the idea, the original language there has the idea of quietness, quietness of spirit. One of the, in Greek, instead of a dictionary, it's called a lexicon, all right? But it's kind of, it gives you definitions and it kind of explains things. And it says, uh, to it's distancing yourself from the bustle or wrestling of wanting to be in charge. It's an attitude. He says, let your attitude when you come into church not be wrestling to see who's going to get to be in charge. And then he says, he says, learn in silence with all subjection. The word subjection there just means rank, to order in rank. General, colonel, captain, or whatever branch you happen to be in. He says, let a woman come in and learn based on her rank. Now the question is, who gets to rank, right? 
Who, gets, who, gets, who gives the promotions? Who gets to decide? And then he says, first of all, women are not to teach. So he says, let them learn in silence and don't teach men. Now, obviously, this is not a blanket prohibition of ladies teaching. It can't be. Why? Older women are taught, are told to teach what is good and to train younger women. If women weren't supposed to teach, then how could they do that? Titus, we learn, has the same faith as his mother and grandmother. We don't hear anything about his dad. Now, Paul never says that his mother and grandmother taught Timothy, but the apparent meaning of the text is Timothy learned from his mom and from his grandmother what the doctrines were. So now we've got not only are we realizing that women are to be teaching, we're realizing that women know doctrine. We come to a lady named Priscilla and her husband Aquila who taught Apollos according to Acts chapter 18. We read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, believers are to be exhorting, are to be teaching, admonishing one another. So the context limits the universal application to a specific application, and that is in a church service, what are the women to do? What are the men to do? If the women are not to be teaching, what are the men supposed to be doing? Teaching. So then we have to ask the question, so which men should not be taught? I mean, I'm just going through this slowly because so often a position is rammed through it. I have read and read and read. I've tried to read most every side of the opinion on this because I wanted to know how people thought but I always want to come back to what does God say so which men must not be taught all men and I would submit to you because there are no limiters in this in verse 12 and because verses 13 and 14 are general it would appear Paul is saying that when women may teach no men Understanding specifically, we're talking about older men by the historical situation, rather than saying, could never teach a child, could never teach a young person. So he's dealing with the corporate setting. And what's the point? Women, notice what he says, the second point here. He says, women are not to usurp men's authority. Now, you have to pause and think for a moment because culturally, right now, maybe you're reacting to that and you would say, I don't like what I'm hearing. I think you've got the problem, Pastor, not me. And my point is, is that, no, he says there's two, there's two things here that you need to know. First of all, he says, make sure, ladies, that you don't come into the assembly and try to teach the men. And then he says, ladies, don't try to usurp the authority, the oversight now, why is that? Is it because women aren't as smart as men? Some people would say that. They're wrong. 
You see, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, Scripture told us right from the beginning, ever since man blamed woman, she wants to be in charge over the man. So what was the application? Just as Eve, God says, Eve, you know, you're going to have problems in childbearing now. Bearing babies was not a curse. That was a blessing. But the pain in childbirth now, it, that was going to be a problem. But the other side of it was they said, you know, from this point on, you're now going to really struggle. You're going to want to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. And that was going to be the problem that was going to be going on. So the application for the Ephesian ladies be, was don't try to reverse the created order by being an authority over men. What does he say? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now this is before sin. This is before the fall. We have to ask this question, and that is, does God do things on purpose, or does God later go, <laughs> I didn't even realize I did that. Did God look at man and woman and say, Okay, man's going to be created first. Absolutely not. God did everything he did on purpose. And what does he do? He appeals to you ladies, and he doesn't, she, he doesn't say, because your husband is so smart, because your pastor is so great, because, because the home life is so wonderful, or because your church, it is just such a great place, ladies, because of that, don't try to usurp authority. The argument that he makes is God created man and then God made woman from man. The order, Paul says, is divine for us to be learning from. You see, men are to be teaching, men are to accept the responsibility of leadership. And there have been times, even in Israel's history, you can think of different ones, when men wouldn't step up to the plate and a lady did. But that wasn't a blessing. You see, God designed and planned the roles. Verse 13 is all pre-fall. God intended male leadership through creation in the home and in worship. And church history shows that this doctrine has asserted that men and women are equal before God, but God intended different roles. That's always been what's taught in the church. And we have always seen that from the very beginning, but we're also in every generation. I've had people say, yes, but things are different now. Let's talk about that for a little bit. First of all, though, I want you to recognize this, and I believe this helps. It does help me. God sovereignly chose order, creation, through male headship. And a headship was given to men without a view to any merit on their part. Bursts our bubble, doesn't it, guys? God chose you should be the leader, not because you're so good. Not because you're so smart. Not because you're so great. But because God chose. Do you see why now 
we are responsible to be leading in prayer. We're to be responsible to be leading in worship because they are depending on us to do what God designed us to do. Now, he makes that point, and he moves on to verse 14, and what does he say? And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So here's the point. Now he's talking about the fall. He's now talking about after sin. And what does he say? Women are made differently than men. Now we have to be very careful, and this is the thing that makes people then react. We stereotype and you hear this term all the time, the misogynistic implications, you know, well, you're just a misogynist. You're just, you're just against women. You know, you just have this chauvinistic thought process. Are men better? And the answer is no. In fact, knowing this, the logical question we would have to ask ourselves is, if the woman was deceived and man was not, why did God... Why did Adam receive the blame for sin? And why did God, in Genesis chapter 3, go to Adam first? Why didn't he go to Eve first? Eve was the one who did it, right? And yet when God came, where are you? He spoke to Adam first. Not only that, why did Paul lay the blame at Adam's feet in Romans chapter 5 and not Eve's? And the one answer is male headship. God said, Adam, you're responsible. You're responsible to lead your wife. You're responsible to teach your wife. You're responsible to guide your wife. Now, they were partners. They did everything together. But when it came to worship... When it came to leadership, he was the one who was supposed to take charge. It was him. Though Adam did not sin first, he was still held responsible for sin entering into the world. To me, that's pretty convincing proof that God intended male leadership. Or God's not fair. And Paul's reflection back on Genesis chapter 3 teaches that God intended male leadership in the church. And just as the serpent and Eve usurped that order, so often, so also the Ephesian woman, women were trying to change their roles. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 3, and we ask, where was Adam when the serpent was tempting Eve? It appears from the text, Adam was standing right there. Adam should have stepped in and said, this is what God says. Eve should have said, Adam. But she stepped up. He didn't. And the illustration that he gives here, he says, look, Adam wasn't deceived, the woman was. Why was the woman deceived? The woman was deceived into taking a role that was not hers. And chapter, verse 14 here is saying, here's the perfect illustration of what happens when you reverse the roles in leadership. Eve was deceived by taking the initiative over the man whom God had given to be with her, to care for her, 
In the same way, he was saying, beware in the church when women try to step up and take a role that wasn't designed for them. Remember, it has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with God said. God said. And today, I've had people say, well, the reason why they didn't back then is because the ladies weren't educated. The ladies didn't get to get, get to go to school. The ladies didn't know this. The ladies didn't know that. And that's the only reason why. That seems really lame for a Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3 argument. That Eve just really didn't know anything and Adam knew everything and she just was really this kind of weak, flighty person. That's not, that's not what God made. We find the Ephesian church was struggling with this. So when we begin to say, you know, I think this is just a new thing today and, and we need to be moving on and our society has changed. And I would totally agree with you, but I don't think society has changed. Since Genesis 3, there has been this struggle with roles in the family and roles in the church. It's not changed. Every generation goes through this same hand-wringing and struggling because we've got to come to grips with ladies are equal with men. We're created equal. Ladies are just as important as men. We have different roles. And when you come into a church service, it ought to reflect a redeemed life, not the old lifestyle. Ahead in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about people that are being deceived. And the analogy is, just as Eve listened to the snake and was deceived, so the Ephesian women were listening to demonic teaching and they were being deceived. The church today is often being deceived into thinking that God's roles are no longer important. You say, why are you spending time on this? Well, the main reason is, is because we're just building a foundation here at the church, and we need to know, do we do what we do just because that's the way we've always done it, or do we do it based on the fact God says it? Now, notice the blessing. The blessing is we have different interests. We have different inclinations. My wife and I are different. Not just physically, we are different. And that's a good thing. Men and women nurture differently. Those are God-made differences. Now let's come to verse 15. Verse 15 has been interpreted many different ways. I think the easiest way to look at this ought to be the plain reading, if we can. Notwithstanding, she, notice it's singular, referring back to the woman, to Eve, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. If they, plural, continue in faith, charity, and holiness with sobriety. First thing we've got to define is, what is saved? Does bearing children cause you to get saved? and people who don't bear children not be saved. That can't be. We've already talked about salvation as a free gift, right? So salvation, what does it mean? Salvation is deliverance. 
So, notwithstanding, she shall be delivered in childbearing. And then he says, and they, if they, and now he's talking about a plural group, a larger group, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And what he points to is, he says, ladies, how do you keep from being deceived? How do you keep from having what happened to Eve happen to you? How do you keep from getting into this whole thing where it creates chaos in your life? And he says, first of all, he doesn't, he's not talking about childbearing as the only thing. But if there's ever a number one thing when God said, be fruitful and multiply, that the man has to scratch his head and say, I can't do this. There's a role difference, isn't there? Who can bear children? A lady can. And what is it, what's the point he's making? He, says, he said, if when Eve focused back on what her role was, she was not open to the temptation of what Satan was bringing into her life. And ladies today, not every lady can bear children. That's not her fault. That's just her body. What does he say? And if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. We've got the same word sobriety that was earlier brought up in the text. And what's he say? He says, first of all, ladies, how do you keep from getting sucked into this? He says, focus on doctrine. Know the truth and accept the truth. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. You see, this is not a cultural thing. This is not a me against you. This is not a male against female. This is, God says, I made everyone on purpose. I made you the way you are. Homes would not be good if you put two men in a home. It takes both that God made. So he talks about faith, love, knowing God so as to trust his intent. And that's really going to be an important thing for ladies. Ladies, when you know God so well that you can trust God with your life, it changes the way you approach the way you live. And then the last thing is holiness, right living. Now go out and do what you know. It's a huge culture clash. A return to pre-fall patterns is always going to create great resistance. Satan's forces do not like when his lies are attacked. God's order brings blessing, and, more, and the more we walk undefiled in the way, the more blessing we experience. You know, often the confusion is as if men and women roles were only a matter of education or culture. It's often confused because men refuse to assume the role God designed, and we assume that role, even if we assume this leadership, I'm the king of my castle, and we assume it with a sinful heart. Preparing for worship before we arrive is so important so that our services reflect God's order and God's blessing. Does our service reflect redemption in attitudes and actions?
that's what we get a chance to establish. That's what we get a chance to set. Men, let me ask you this. Are you coming with right attitudes and actions? Do we show dependence on God? Or do we try to force and manipulate others to our wishes? How about in our homes? Ladies, do you prepare to come with right attitudes and actions? Do you show dependence on God in your choices of clothing and submission? You know, sometimes we, we say, uh, you're making too much out of the clothing thing. You notice I haven't even mentioned any kind of clothing. Because you know what I discovered as I was counseling with a lady one day? And when her attitudes were out of line, her clothing got out of line. But what was fascinating was I never even saw the clothing. It didn't matter to me except she told me. She said, I bought this outfit so that when I went to this location, I would be noticed. And she said, I never took that outfit home. I left it where my husband wouldn't ever see it. Can you see, the clothing's not the problem, is it? The attitude was the problem. The clothing reflected the heart. Our worship reflects a reset back to God's original design. That's why this is such a big deal. I, I hope you haven't just checked out this morning. I hope you haven't said, well, this is just, I don't know, I can't follow it. Big picture, our worship reflects our redeemed lifestyles. In men and in women, it reflects our submission to God's sovereignty of saying, I made you on purpose. Because our worship demonstrates the changed life of one who now has a pure heart, a good conscience, and unfeigned faith. Could we have female pastors? Not if we want to follow God's stated plan. Not if we want to avoid the failures of leadership that Adam and Eve went through. What roles should male and female play in worship? Submission to God and trusting his path. You know, for some of us men, that means we're going to need to step up and begin saying, you know what, I've been kind of passive, I've been sitting back, but I see now my role is I should be participating. I should be willing to. I may have to work on some things to get to where I can do this. Can I back up for just a moment and have you think about this? Can you see how gender fluidity is an attack against God's authority? We're living in a day today that just says, let the children decide. We have no idea what children are. If you remove God's sovereign choice in making you male or making you female, and you get to choose whatever you are, how will you ever know what your purpose is in life? How will you ever have direction in life? Do you see what we're doing to our society? It's yet another step in saying, you can't trust God. He can't even get your gender right. You see, God's word is always a lamp 
and a light. Women's roles have always been as important as men's, and Satan tries to put a wedge as if one role is more important than another. In God's eyes, function does not equate value. I'm going to run a race. My eyes tell me where the track is. My heart is pushing all the fluids where they need to go. My lungs are dying, but they're trying to get me where I'm supposed to be with enough oxygen to keep everything functioning. My feet are hurting, and my arms are flailing as I'm trying to get where I'm going, and I cross the finish line. Now, who's important? The body won. Oh, no, the head won. No, the head didn't win. head would still be at the starting line. Oh, no, the feet won. Well, they wouldn't know where they're going. Well, the heart won. You begin to realize the foolishness of it. Do you understand now why God calls this a body? None of us are more important than anyone else. That statement starts with me and it goes to everyone else. Every job is just as important as the others. If we win, we all win. If we lose, we all lose. We're a body. A body without parts is incomplete. Services that reflect redemption. I appreciate your patience this morning as we've, I've just tried to go through this slowly, but I hope you'll begin to recognize when he talks about being saved through childbearing, what he's talking about is you will be protected when you do the role you're designed to do. And how do you do that? Knowing the truth, getting to know God, and doing what you know. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that we can trust you, that my job as a shepherd is to make sure your people know your word. I believe, Father, the thing that has hurt us so often is... Sometimes opinions are preached, but other times we dismiss your teaching by saying that's just someone's opinion. And we don't wrestle with your word enough to say this is the plain meaning of the text. Father, I pray that you would allow us to be a light in this community as we come and we reflect a redeemed lifestyle in our services, as we reflect this submission to who you are and we reflect this dependence upon you, that the world around us would see how great you are, that they would see how you've provided for us through Jesus Christ, and that they would see that there's hope for change. Father, for those who do not know you as their Savior, we pray for them. We ask that they would see truth, that they would see the law and recognize their sin. And they would recognize their need of a Savior. And they would recognize that you so love us, that you've been very patient with us so that we would have opportunity to respond. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.